0: From KQED. This is forum I mean a kim. We turn now to the national coronavirus picture. Today, Texas Governor Greg Abbott shut down bars and scaled back restaurant dining, a major reversal as the state deals with a surge in coronavirus cases. Alexis Madrigal of the COVID Tracking Project at the Atlantic wrote this week in a piece with Robinson Meyer that, the American coronavirus pandemic is once again at risk of spinning out of control, with the U.S. seeing more cases in the past week than in any week since the pandemic began. New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut have now imposed restrictions on travelers from Texas, Arizona, and other states in the South and West as cases spike. Alexis Madrigal, thanks for joining us on Forum. Thank you for having me. First, your reaction to the news coming out of Texas. I mean, what does this tell you about the spike in cases there that Governor Greg Abbott is taking these dramatic steps now?
1: Well, I I guess I would say it's not that dramatic given what we know is happening there. Um, we that they need have to do more? Se- that they need to do more, yeah. Um, I see that as more of a bare minimum for, for what could or should be done there. Um, you know, it, it's a really difficult problem um, to have such a large nation and that has had uh, the outbreak in just such different places. You know, in the Northeast, um, things got really, really, really bad. But most of the rest of the country took kind of a glancing blow, and then everybody shut down. Now you have, in the South and West, an uncontained outbreak, um, which has locked in lots of infections um, over the next couple of weeks showing up in our data. And people are realizing like, the virus is still the virus. It's still going to spread. It's still going to uh, kill people. People are going to be hospitalized. Uh, and we're seeing that. It's not just that cases are going up. It's that hospitalizations are going up, basically, um, in lockstep. So it's, um, I I guess my main reaction to it is that governors probably should have seen this coming but the economic pain of the shutdowns um, led people to some magical thinking that they could reopen their economies even though there was a lot of viral uh, infection in their communities and now we're seeing the effects of that.
0: Yes, I mean, some of the numbers in your piece are just jaw dropping. You're talking about how Texas on June first had 600 new cases of COVID-19. And then, you know, just before you published your piece that that 5000 cases, um, you know, and hospitalizations doubling in the same period. And as you said, it's not just cases, it's hospitalizations, and it's also the test positivity rate, right? I mean, this is what uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci keeps saying is is a real indicator of more infection in the community, not just more testing.
1: That's That's exactly right. I mean, it is true that the United States tests far more people than we did before, which means we're probably capturing a larger percentage Um, Of the real number of infections that are out there become confirmed cases The problem with that is, you know in the early days because of the failures uh, at the CDC uh, at the FDA and other parts of the uh, Federal government as well as at the states too. There's enough blame to to go around in February and March um, And into into April we were probably capturing, you know one two three five ten percent of cases depending on where you were which meant that there was this huge pool of infections that we never recorded in the official numbers. This time around, we're testing more people, um, so we're getting higher numbers of of cases, but we still don't know what percentage of cases we're actually um, capturing. And the only kind of metric we have to to think about that gap between known cases and the total real cases um, is this test positivity rate. Um, one thing that we see like in New York um, there for for every hundred tests that they administer Only one of them is coming back Positive and that tends to mean you're you're probably capturing most uh, at least symptomatic infections What's happened now um, in Arizona, which is really kind of the lead um, State for for looking at the this new surge yes. um, now for every um, Hundred tests they do, they're getting back like between 20 and 25 uh, positive. And one thing that we have seen when you start to get numbers that look like that is qualitatively the stories that come out of a place like that are long lines of testing, testing appointments not available, the supply, the local supply chains for, uh, for tests started to break down, the workers that are necessary to do the swabbing, um, coming in short supply, particularly if they get infected and have to stay out of work. And you kind of get these uh, problems that quickly roll away uh, from from being able to be contained. Um, and what's amazing to, to us at the COVID Tracking Project, you know, having, you know, every day since March 4th, we've put together these numbers, compiling them from the states, is how quickly we went from seeming like things were okay um, in, you know, up to June 15th to suddenly the numbers looking catastrophic. It really did happen that the numbers changed over um, the last uh, six days um, and they changed dramatically. And because the numbers lag, what that really means is about, you know, say three weeks ago, things started to change dramatically um, with the state of infection uh, in the country.
0: Well, let me invite our listeners to join this conversation. We're talking about the surge in infections and hospitalizations in the south and west of the U.S., which has prompted Texas, Florida, and Arizona to pause their reopening plans. We're talking with Atlantic staff writer Alexis Madrigal. He runs the COVID tracking project there, and his recent article is a devastating new stage of the pandemic. What questions do you have for Alexis? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And so, Alexis Madrigal, why why are we seeing such a dramatic increase? Um, mm-hmm. You know, is part of it the fact that we began reopening? Is it the fact that we aren't wearing masks the way that some other nations are among their population? I mean,
1: yeah, I think there's a few things um, that account for the kind of stunning rise that we've seen. Um, the most basic one is. We kind of have one tool that has been proven to work right now, and that is the lockdowns. The problem is the lockdowns are very difficult to sustain, Um, and we actually, you know, we call it a lockdown here in the U.S., you know, but that's not, it's not really like the kind of lockdown that led to the viral suppression in some countries of Europe and and in uh, some Asian countries. Ours have been pretty... Soft lockdown so disease transmission continued. It just didn't continue, you know at um, rates that led to exponential growth Um, so we didn't we did basically kind of a softer lockdown than most places Um, and That led to some disease suppression, but not uh, the levels that really allowed um, places to reopen without um, Infections really starting to to grow and so we sort of lockdown late, lockdown week, and then opened up. And now politically, it's become quite, uh, it looks untenable to really go to more um, intense lockdown measures, um, particularly in the places where the infection is growing the most quickly and where the positivity rate has gone up the most, indicating you know more severe outbreaks. Almost all of the states in which we're seeing this have Republican governors who have come out against um, more intense and less voluntary measures, and in those same states, the mask wearing, um, you know, which is a, a pretty libertarian solution to all this, you know, you just, you know, you put a mask on yourself, became a real um, political issue. Um, you know, the governor of Arizona was seen uh, at bars without a mask, hanging out. Um, you know, you had they actually uh, prevented until last week. Um, municipalities from having any stricter rules than were in place when the pandemic uh, began. So they not only, you know, sort of showed people, um, and ex- you know, <laughs> set this example against mask wearing, but on top of it prevented cities um, from doing anything to protect themselves. And when I talked to Mayor Gallego down um, in Phoenix, you know, she was like, I- yes, I wish we had all the tools on the table, but we don't have them.
0: So you're saying that cities that wanted to enact say stronger rules around masks or reopening could not do it because these governors passed laws basically saying that these municipalities could not supersede state rules.
1: Yeah, they preempted the the rules at the at the local level and they've rolled that you know Texas and Arizona started to roll that back, but again, it's, it's one of these things where the lag throws everybody off because by the time you see it show up in the numbers, it really means that the thing has been going for seven or 14 days already. Um, so it's really a lot of what we're seeing now is, is already baked in. And there's, it's not only, you know, we, we kind of can't stop the numbers from going up right now. That's one thing that we've learned in this project.
0: So basically what you're saying, it, it must be far worse now.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. Like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, um, I think everyone should be prepared um, to see these numbers uh, go up a lot more. All, all that said, I do want to say a couple other things. Um, on a per capita basis, the Northeast actually got hit much harder than the South and West have been hit so far. So I can just put some numbers to that at the sort of Peak of known cases in the Northeast, and keep in mind there were even more than this—a lot, lot more than this. Um, there were uh, about three hundred and seventeen uh, cases uh, per million reported, like at the peak day. Right now, in the South, uh, the number is like one hundred and thirty-six, so you know less than less than half on a on a per capita um, basis. The problem is that the South, at least as defined by the Census is like more than twice the size of the Northeast. And so in raw absolute numbers, those, even if the South doesn't get hit as hard as New York, which had sort of a world historically bad outbreak, um, the numbers could still be uh, higher, especially because we're capturing a, a larger number of infections. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's, there's some, we don't actually know how bad it is yet um, in Arizona, um, and we can't compare it very easily to New York again because we were sort of blind with no testing in when the infection was really growing um, in New York and so we're kind of in, in, in a way we're sort of seeing the takeoff of this uh, Of this virus in new places with kind of eyes wide open for the first time and it means for example that we don't know um, what percentage of people Um, are going to die um, relative to the cases, right, the sort of case fatality rate. We actually, we've been, um, we just haven't known how many cases we had (laughs) until quite recently when testing started to come up to levels that might actually capture a significant number of them.
0: Well, this listener writes Italy, Spain, New York, these places were hit hard initially and are not seeing a spike in the absence of a vaccine isn't a surge inevitable, which would mean the job of officials is to shield those at high risk and ensure hospital capacity.
1: Well, you know, it's a good question. You know, there has been a lot of talking, seen a lot on Twitter and in in the discourse of saying, Well, why, why are we shutting down all of society? Why don't we just protect the most vulnerable? And my response to this has become, well, show me the plan to protect the most vulnerable then. Show me the plan to actually protect nursing homes and long-term care facilities. Like, show, show me that plan. Because the truth is, most places don't have one. They have some guidelines um, that, oh, yeah, you know, it would be good if you tested in these nursing homes and care facilities. It would be good if you, uh, you know, had like an equity plan. So that black and black communities specifically weren't hit too hard, where we're seeing, you know, just incredible disproportionality in the number yes. of, of black people dying. So show me that plan, and then sure, let's talk about that. And and that has not happened. If people think out there that what's happened is that great plans have been developed across the country to uh, protect long-term care facilities, nursing homes, and assisted living places, it's just not true. If people think that Plants have been developed to protect vulnerable Black communities, um, and so it's okay if the rest of society uh, opens up. It's that's not true, and um, there's just been a lot of just BS, frankly, about like how we're going to protect vulnerable people, and so everyone can just go back to their normal lives. And um, I wish we'd done that. I wish we'd protected vulnerable communities, but um, it's it, except for a few states where we've seen plans like Massachusetts, Virginia. Rhode Island seems to be doing a decent job testing. Um, these states haven't shown up with money to the nursing homes and testing teams and said, here, here's your money to do this testing. Here's a schedule on which you're going to do it. Here's a team that's going to do it. Now protect these people so that they don't die. Um, that just didn't happen.
0: I feel like what I'm hearing you say, Alexis, is that what we're seeing now, a lot of it was preventable.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, look at the rest of the world. Um, I, you know, I, I, think when you look at what has happened, just compare the European union, you know, similar kind of, uh, wealth levels and actually had a, a disease burden that was quite similar to the U S at one point. And now it's not now most of the European countries, uh, have successfully suppressed this virus. They're starting to go about daily life. They haven't seen, um, surges look at Japan, same, same deal. The U.S. hasn't done that. <laughs> we, you know, it, what was really amazing is right before this surge, um, Vice President Pence um, was out with an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal and they were talking about it in the press about how you know, we'd had such success bringing cases down to 20,000 cases uh, a day, uh, confirmed cases. And I, I was stunned by that because every other country would not see that as success. And yet in the U.S., just people were like, oh yeah, yeah, cases are down to 20,000 a day. I mean that's a lot of infections you know that particularly for something that we know can grow so quickly in unconstrained conditions um, you can't just have 20,000 infected people around um, mm-hmm. especially because I'm oh, sorry I, I no no i ranting them <laughs> but you know, I mean especially because you know the the other thing that was supposed to help aside from you know mass and protecting the vulnerable was contact tracing and um, in most places, contact tracing is a is a fiction. I, I asked a Arizona former um, uh, public health uh, director in Arizona named Will Humble. You know, I told him that I was worried about um, contact tracing, particularly in um, you know, Mexican and Mexican communities in which there be people have different citizenship status. You got undocumented people, you got documented people, um, and I, I worried that. that um, it would be difficult to do contact tracing. And he cuts me off and he goes, yeah, but that would assume that they're actually doing contact tracing um, in Arizona and they're not doing very much of it. Um, and so in the hardest hit place of this second surge, um, you are just up on the very, very basics of contact tracing. And of course, the more cases you have, the harder that task becomes. And so a contact tracing infrastructure can become um, totally overwhelmed immediately, which I'm certain has happened there now. And so none of the things that we thought we would have back in March if we were to have problems in the summertime have actually gotten into, um, into place. And here we are back in a, this new stage.
0: Again, we're talking with The Atlantic's Alexis Madrigal. He runs the COVID Tracking Project. And uh, I'd like to go to Maria in Oakland. Hi, Maria, join us.
1: Hello. Hello. Uh, yes. Uh, what I would like to know is why is it that nobody in the media, nobody mentions the protesters? Because they're the ones that are a petri dish. They're basically spreading the disease or spreading the virus. And only because they're not showing signs or whatever. But they're the ones. I mean, mm. we're doing our job. We were we were locked down for three months. And then all of a sudden they come and then they start doing all the no masks. No no social distancing, no washing hands. And again, nothing says anything about it. And- Maria,
0: actually, I, I do know that KQED has been working on a story related to protesters. And actually, I think uh, that they were talking about how there wasn't a significant spike as a result of the protests in California. But Alexis Madrigal, correct correct me if I'm wrong here.
1: Yeah, um, Maria, it's a, it's a really good question. We were... Um we were my reporting partner quite quite worried um, obviously i mean like black people experience health outcomes that are are terrible and that are due to systemic racism and um, police violence is part of that and and the protests the like idea of the protest seemed justified to me uh, at the same time that doesn't mean that there wasn't some risk involved. Um, we have been tracking in like individual cities that had large protests like, uh, like Minneapolis, for example, New York, um, where, we, where we saw major uh, protests. I still think it's too early to definitively mm-hmm. say what's happened. I can say that the numbers that we're seeing here probably are not a result of the protests.
0: You mean um, here in California
1: here, here in California a, a, as well as in, in other places, but it's it's hard to know we just haven't seen a clear signal um, from protests into greater spread. Um, it, it's tough because there's a lot of confounding factors right the opening up the opening up of general life were happening at the same time as the the protests really uh beginning and so it it may be that it's very difficult for us um particularly in the short term without like really high resolution data to be able to say yes this these protests did or did not contribute i would say the early evidence has been surprising to me personally that we haven't seen more of a signal that the protests um, had a, a large effect. Well, That's, I think, the most I can say.
0: Radu writes, we should get as many people infected as possible before flu season is done, as long as the hospitals aren't overwhelmed, which they aren't. China, South Korea, and Japan have shown that extinction is a fool's errand since they continue to have community transmission after they'd supposedly killed it off.
1: Um, you know, there's this thought. I, um, I, find it sort of remarkably callous thought, I suppose. Um, And I also think it really, the, 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 that argument really depends on um, how good your society is at protecting the most vulnerable who are likely to die. And um, I, I would just ask the listeners out there, how good do you think the United States is at protecting the most vulnerable people? Um, like what are our what are our maternal death rates for Black women? How do, how is how are things going with our uh, unhoused population? Um, how do we treat the most vulnerable people um, in the United States? And if we think that the U.S. is great at protecting vulnerable people, then perhaps you could say, yeah, sure, let's go full herd immunity. The other thing that I would say is. If you look at places that have tried to do that, the the examples cited there are not places that went for herd immunity at all. They they did not do that. If you look at places that tried to go for herd immunity, oftentimes they've had to to pull it back. The US healthcare system is is, is fairly brittle. It's been a lot of um, hospital beds have been taken out of the system over time. We also know that it's not just having a bed. We know that when you go to that kind of surge capacity, you get a lower standard of care. So people are then basically, if if you let this thing really go unchecked, tons of people get infected. Even if you have surge capacity that allows you to technically take people uh, into the hospital, um, we know that that the standard of care suffers under those circumstances. And the other, the last thing I wanna say about it is who gets turned away from the hospital. Again, this goes to sort of the racial equity lens. Who gets who gets turned away from the hospital and who gets admitted is something that we need to talk about because we know from the other sort of medical anthropology and sociology literature that it's gonna disproportionately be brown and black people who get turned away from those hospitals.
0: In terms of containment, I mean, the outbreak in New York was largely contained in the Northeast region, do you think it will be harder to contain the outbreaks that we're seeing from Florida to, to Arizona?
1: I just don't see how it stays contained. I, I've, been, I've been asked this question for a long time. You know, I was, I was on a run out like out in the wilds of E.B. Mudland, so I wouldn't see anybody. And it just dawned on me like, we're fighting this on a state by state basis. And yet you can cross borders of the states here. And what is the plan? You know, we're also re,
0: have reopened more. So there's just been a lot more interaction. Generally. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just once it dawns on you that we're fighting this state by state and that you can't win state by state, then what's going to happen? And I think that's what we're seeing. And, you know, the, if you look at the states that sort of border right now where the larger outbreaks are, so places like Missouri, Ohio, um, stuff like place like that. And eventually, I think, you know, look to Virginia as an early indication of this. Like uh, how, we're, this thing is not gonna stay in the states um, where where it initially broke out. It's only because the Northeast went with such heavy measures um, that they were able to get this thing under control. And the worst thing is the people there suffered a lot and a lot of people died. A lot of people had to stay uh, in apartments with kids for weeks and weeks on end. They got it under control. They, they, the New York has the best looking numbers of any place in the entire country now in terms of uh, testing uh, positive rate and the amount of testing they're doing in the population. And now they just have to sit there while other states who didn't, who, 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 have, who are letting this outbreak go, just fly into LaGuardia, you know? And that is, they've asked, of course, it, it's worth saying they've asked people to uh, quarantine themselves coming in from um, the hottest states for the outbreak. But what are the real tools to actually ask, make people do that? I mean, it, it is, it's a really, really tough situation. And I don't see it being contained in the places where it currently is.
0: Well, a couple more comments from our listeners. This listener writes, Do you have a sense that people have relaxed on sanitizing, 20 second hand washing, and masks? It seems like those practices would help stop the spread of other illnesses, such as the flu and common colds. I wish people would be more cautious, regardless of coronavirus. And Jackie writes, There have been so many media outlets that promote irresponsible behavior and against masks and distancing. I have a son away at college, and he's bombarded with the message that the virus is not a problem. I also have educated, well-off Republican friends who have espoused all of the protection practices as socialist. Alexis Madrigal, you've been talking about sort of the delay, right, in terms of knowing when when and how bad things were because of the fact that statistics tell us what was happening in the community, two or three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, when do you think we will know the true death toll of this surge that we're talking oh, about? It's, today?
1: Going, it's going to be a while. It's going to be a while. We've been trying to really get a hold and, I, and other, other places too. I mean, the more official bodies like the CDC and um, Tom Frieden, who's the former um, CDC director who now is running a, another organization uh, called Stop Pandemics. Everyone's trying to get a hold of like, well, what, what does this lag really look like? Um, it's just that it's right now kind of estimates um, not just of how long it takes for people to die, but sort of the reporting pipeline from that death to finally get into the, into the data. It's, it, it's been surprisingly long. I mean, I think like if we look at a month, um, then I, I think that makes sense. And so, you know, we I would say we expect on our team that the deaths have been falling for quite some time. Um, And we expect uh, that trend to reverse next week at some point. Um, And but we the thing is, there are, I've given a lot of downer things, there are some reasons to hope that age, that younger people are getting infected and maybe there will be less death than in the first round.
0: Yes, that's what the CDC was suggesting. And also the last positive that you note in your piece is that we are testing a lot more, though not quite enough, it sounds like. Well, Alexis Madrigal, thanks so much for talking with us this morning. Really appreciate having you on. Thank you. Alexis Madrigal, his piece is a devastating new stage of the pandemic. It's in the Atlantic this week. He's also running the Atlantic's COVID tracking project. Thanks also to our listeners for their questions and comments. We will be looking at the unhoused community in the next hour and how they are faring amid the pandemic. So stay with us for that. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum.